Welcome to the New Life Philly podcast. Every week, we share fresh insights as we explore the inexhaustible depths of the Word of God. We pray that you will be encouraged and challenged today as we continue in our study. Let's join in now. Um, we are now in the second week of Advent, two candles. Uh, and thank you for the readings today. Thank you for serving us today to Leah and family. Amen. Uh, as we are celebrating Advent, Advent uh, is a time of preparation. The, the, the word comes from a Latin word that means coming. But Advent is a time of preparation. Um, this summer, I had a chance to do something that I had not done since I was a teenager, and that is go camping for real, for real. My wife and I like to go glamping, uh, where you stay in a nice place and then go walk a trail during the day. But this was like real camping with my younger brother uh, with a canoe and everything that we needed had to be packed and prepared in that canoe. Our main source of sustenance on our trip would be the fish that we caught. I lost weight during that trip. <laughs> but, but I was amazed, I hadn't done this in so long, how many things, how many intricate details there were in preparing for just a few days trip like that. We on the Potomac River where you can find an island, any island in the middle of it and set up camp. And so we did that. It was a wonderful time. But I just the intricacies of preparation and making sure we had the checklist and check each and everything off of that list so that we could truly enjoy that trip. And by God's grace, we did. But in this season, we are in a season of preparation. It's interesting that, you know, we're in December. We're thinking this is the end of the year, but Advent in the church calendar is actually the beginning. It's the beginning because we're getting ready for the great event of the coming of Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. So we prepare for that. Today, let's stand together as we read from the Word of God. And we're going to read from Luke. I guess I have this. Wow. Does this work? Yes. Luke chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 from Luke chapter 3. Let's read the Word of God together. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iduria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord God, we praise you that all people will see your salvation. That you have sent the messenger, John the Baptist, before Christ came to point people to yourself. And you do that over and over again as you're pointing us even now to you. God, I pray that you'll use these coming moments that all of our hearts would have a clearer view of Jesus than we've had even before. That your name might be glorified in us. And through us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Today, I'm speaking on the idea of preparing the way for the Savior. You heard it both in the Advent readings from Isaiah chapter 40 and in John chapter 1. You heard of this uh, one who is coming, the messenger of God, to prepare the way. And again, we've read that in Luke chapter 3. Preparing the way for the Lord. And, and my theme today, the main idea today, is that a timely prophetic word is the necessary preparation for salvation. We need to hear from God. Amen. And thanks be to God that he has spoken to us once and for all through his son. He's given us his word, the Bible, so that we can know him and walk with him and discover in him everything we need, the Bible says, for life and godliness. It's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So let's, let's go into this text today. I, I wanna, we're going to look at four different things uh, about this text as we're preparing the way for the Savior. The first one comes from the first couple of verses, the cultural setting for or of the preparation. And, and you see Luke, this great historian, Luke, he's a physician, but he's also a historian. Most of us are very uh, 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 aware of Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story, and, and how he precisely uh, talks about how exactly this fits into history, when exactly this was. And he does it again here as he sets the cultural setting for the preparation uh, of the Savior coming. And he starts out by saying in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, we can date that. Tiberius Caesar was the second emperor of Rome from A.D. 4 up until A.D. 37. So the 15th year of his reign would be the year 29 A.D. or so. Could be 28 or 29 A.D. So he marks it in time. He wants to let us know this is not just some made up story, but this is the real deal. It was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then he says, 
When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, uh, Pontius Pilate was the governor from 26 to 37 or 36 uh, AD. And Pontius Pilate, most of us know him as the one who seemingly reluctantly agreed to have Jesus crucified. But if you read Roman historians, you find more about the character of Pontius Pilate. He was known as an, as a person who was inflexible. He was cruel. He was relentless and self-willed. His administration was marked by bribery. It was marked by frequent executions without trial. And it was marked by endless, savage ferocity. Pontius Pilate was a cruel leader over the people of God in Judea at that time. He had little respect, unlike many other Roman governors, for the Jewish people. In fact, he even took money from the temple treasury. And then he says also, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee. Again, you know, Herod is mentioned over and over again in the pages of the New Testament. This particular Herod, Herod, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee, sometimes called King Herod. We've come across that in Mark's gospel as well. So Herod Antipas is actually his name, and he was a Tetrarch from 4 A.D. to 39 A.D. And although he was of a mixed Jewish background and he tried to keep certain parts of the Jewish law, he consistently, time and time again, offended the sensibilities of the Jewish people in many ways, including building his capital city, Tiberias, on a graveyard, which is something that no first century Jew would have anyone to do. So this is Herod Antipas. And then Philip, who is Herod's nicer brother. We talked about him as we were going through Mark. And finally, he marks it by saying Annas and Caiaphas as the high priest, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Actually, during this time, Caiaphas was the high priest, but Annas uh, was his father-in-law and had the type of sway. He, he had swag. He was a big deal. And so when people thought of the high priesthood, even in this time, even though he was no longer serving in that capacity, they still mentioned his name because of his exploits and because he was loved as the great high priest in Judea earlier than that. What does all this tell us about? Here's what I want you to see. He's not just marking this for us in specific time in history. But what Luke is doing is telling us of the complex social, political, and religious setting into which John the Baptist came. All of this intrigue from Rome and this interior intrigue, both from the political powers of Judaism and the religious powers in Judaism. And in the midst of all of this, the word of God, the scripture says, came to John, son of Zechariah. 
The word of God comes to John. Now it's interesting that here the word for word is rhema. There's two words that are often used in the New Testament for word rhema, which is used here, and logos, which was used in John chapter 1 that was just read. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was the word of God, and the logos was God. And so what, what is being said here is the word of God came to John. This is a timely word. It's a word that's announced uh, into a specific situation and time. Here it is, the timeless word of God. The, the, the timely word of God is pronounced by the prophet in order to announce the timeless and eternal word of God, Jesus, who is the Christ. He comes to announce the one who will save their people from their sins. The next piece of this is not only the, the cultural setting of the preparation, but the specific place of the preparation. Look at what it says. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, where? In the wilderness. The word of God came to him in the wilderness. The wilderness was seen as an inhospitable place. A deserted place, a, a desolate place, a difficult place. And when, and when the scripture is telling us that the word of God comes to him in the wilderness for the people of God, when they think of the wilderness, their mind goes back to their wilderness wanderings. From the time that they were uh, set free from slavery in Egypt until that time, 40 years later, when they finally made it into the promised land, they were in that wilderness place, that difficult place, that desolate place. And here comes John. He's in the wilderness. And God's people have once again been in the wilderness themselves, not just for 40 years, but for 400 years. Years, prophecy had dried up in Israel. The hope was there for Messiah, but there was no prophet. Malachi at the end of our uh, Old Testament is probably the last of the Old Testament prophets. But for 400 years, they were waiting to hear there was no prophet, but John comes from the wilderness. That desolate place, that difficult place. That place that is out of human control. But the wilderness is that place that prophets are made. That prophets are formed. The great prophet Moses, he is educated in Egypt by Pharaoh and his court. But his real education, we know, comes on the backside of the desert as a sheep herder, a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. He is made the prophet that he is through his wilderness experience. The great prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah, is the one who comes out, out of nowhere, from the wilderness, much like John does in the New Testament. And then finally, Jesus 
is also the great prophet. And we know he has his wilderness experience, his temptation experience where the enemy comes to him in a desert place, in a lonely place, in a hostile place. He comes to him in the wilderness and he tempts him, but he pushes away the enemy by the word of God. And the scripture says of Jesus that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, part of his being our savior was his wilderness experience, his dealing with that wilderness experience, that place of preparation. Finally, the place of Spiritual formation. The wilderness is the place of spiritual formation. Somebody say amen and somebody say ouch. Okay, you can say both of those. It's an amen because it's just the truth and it's also an ouch because in many ways we wish it wasn't the truth. I wish you could just go to seminary or to Sunday school, or to small group, or to church, or just read your Bible and do your spiritual disciplines, and you're going to grow and flourish as this mighty man or woman of God. But the reality is, we all have to go through our wilderness experience, our difficult place, our place where we wonder, God, what are you doing, and why are you doing this? We all have to go through that place. So I want to ask this question. What wilderness is God calling you to? See, the reality for all of us, we go through trials and struggles and difficulties. And most of the time, come on, let's be honest. We just blame the devil. We just we just love to blame the devil. But the reality is God is forming a people. He is forming you. He is forming you through every experience of your life, including the very most difficult ones. Don't short circuit God's work by avoiding the wilderness. Now, here's what else I want, I want you to see in this, that the wilderness has to be your wilderness experience has to be about more than just your surviving it. If that's all that you're interested in, in your wilderness experience, then you're short-circuiting the work of God. God wants to do more than have you simply survive the wilderness. He wants you to find him in the middle of it. He wants you to praise him in the midst of it. Here's what I, I want you to see. Embracing your wilderness journey is an act of faith that marks your life as a compass that always points others to the hope of Jesus. Can somebody say amen to that? I was waiting for an amen. Okay. God wants to use your experience to make your life a compass, not just for yourself, that points others to Jesus. So the question is not will you suffer in this life? You will. But the question is, will your suffering be used to point people toward Jesus? How will you suffer? 
How will you struggle? How will you deal with the complexities and difficulties of sickness, of economic problems, of relational difficulties? All of these things that hit every person uh, alike, they hit us all. How will that be used to be a testimony of the greatness of Jesus Christ? That's what God wants to do through this wilderness. Last week, Dr. Walters pointed us back to Habakkuk chapter 1. That, that terrible uh, but, but understandable and very real word of the prophet that starts out, How long, O Lord, will I cry out violence? And it seems like you don't hear. You're not doing anything, God. This is part of our wilderness experience. But if, if, if you walk by faith in Jesus Christ, your wilderness will take you from Habakkuk chapter 1 all the way to Habakkuk chapter 3, where the prophet says, though the fig tree does not blossom, and there, though there be no fruit on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And then at the end of this, don't throw this away. He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. Then he says these words. Hear this from the prophet. Before any of his difficulties or, or trials have been understood by him, he still doesn't know what's going on. But he says of God, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He keeps my footing where it looks like I should just slip and be no more. He's the one that keeps me. This is our God. The message from the prophet comes from the place of the wilderness to proclaim the coming savior. And we need to proclaim him in our wilderness experiences as well. The third piece I want you to look at is the nature of this preparation. Verses 3 and 4, he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to stop right there. John comes and the scripture says he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is something new. This is something different for the Jewish people. Now, there were many ritual washings that took place in Judaism. They're all over Torah. Scripture talks about washings for the priests in order to offer the sacrifices, washings for the high priest in certain ways that they do that before uh, the day of atonement. There are washings of all of the people of God as they are ceremonially cleansing themselves from all kinds of defilements. There are all these washings that happen, but this is something radically different. Now, in some ways, it's very much the same. It's marking John as a true prophet of God because he comes to cry out for the repentance of people, turning them away from sin and back to God. That's a mark 
of the true prophets of the Old Testament. And so Mark and, and so John comes clothed not only in camel's hair and, and eating locusts and wild honey, but he comes with this powerful message of repentance. But it is a baptism of repentance, the scripture says, for the forgiveness of sins. This is different because it's a one-time baptism. It's not a get baptized over and over again thing. It's not, okay, you got a little defilement today, you need to be baptized again. No, it's a one-time baptism for the forgiveness of sin, not just a ceremonial washing. We're going to talk a lot more about repentance next week. I'm not going to go super deep into that topic this week, but we need to know this. There is no such thing. Somebody say no such thing. There's no such thing as salvation that does not include repentance. Repentance is the recognition that I have fallen short of God's glory and I weep over that and decide to turn in a different way. It's not just feeling bad that I did something wrong or that I got caught, but it is true sorrow in your heart for your sin against God and how you've hurt others in turning back to God. In Scripture, repentance and faith are two sides of a coin. And you don't have one if you don't also have the other. Sometimes I get scared that the church, the big C church, uh, in our country and world, sometimes we get so caught up on... Simple, just caught up on slivers of doctrine. We get caught up on exclusionary orthodoxy. I just made up that phrase. But the type of orthodoxy that tries to go and go and go until it finds out where you don't fit. Exclusionary orthodoxy. But our heart is not given to orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is how you live out what you believe. If I believe that I have a Savior, if you believe that you have a Savior who longs to bring people to himself, then our heart's desire is to see people come and find life and hope, not to exclude people, but to invite people in. This is what we're called to as believers. So let's not be a people. Let's not be a people who stress doctrinal precision in such a way that it looks to exclude. Instead, let us new life family be a people who live under the influence of the spirit of God and spread the love, the hope and the joy that is in Jesus Christ wherever we go. You need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Repentance is God's call for us to come back into right alignment with him. And this promotes the shalom, the peace, the blessing, the the saving power of God in our lives and in our world. Here's what I want you to see. John's baptism is not an end in itself 
but it is a beginning. It's pointing to the only one who can save. This is the last part of verse 4. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, what? Prepare the way for the Lord. Baptism, repentance, apart from seeing the finished work of Jesus Christ has no power. Water's not going to wash away your sins, even your desire to do it. But it is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is what John's baptism speaks of. Look at what he's going to do. He is pointing people to the way of the Lord, and he's pointing people to the Lord. Listen, everything points to Jesus. That's the point of the whole thing. So last piece here, the effect of this prep, preparatory work. Everything has to change. Look, look at what it says. Make straight paths for him. Verse 5, every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The, crick, the crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. Everything has to change when you understand that Jesus has come. And so this is what John is doing, preparing the way. And he says, this is some of the everything changing. He says that uh, every valley shall be filled in. You're way down here. You can't see too well. We're going to fill that in and bring you up here. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. You think you're looking down on somebody. He says, that's not going to be the truth anymore. We're bringing you right down here. He says, the, the, the way that is crooked, we're going to make that straight. Uh, the, the, the straight path, paths will be made straight for him. The crooked roads will become straight. The thing that is rough and difficult, we're going to smooth that out. In other words, everyone will be able to see the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. We're making the way clear. Jesus himself is that way. Everyone gets a clear view of the coming one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. That is the effect of John's ministry. Here's our question. Is that the effect of my life? Is, is my life pointing people to Jesus Christ? Is my life doing that consistently? Biblical preaching, biblical teaching, and biblical living means very little if it's not removing the obstacles to Jesus from people's lives and pointing them clearly to the person and work of Jesus Christ. When our walk and life is not lining up with our talk and our doctrine, then we are making the straight path to Jesus crooked. When our lives and our lips oppose one another, we obscure the beauty and the hope that's found in Jesus. John comes and he prepares the way. This is why Jesus said John is the greatest 
of all men that have ever lived on the face of the earth. He's the greatest prophet because he is the one who comes in time and points people directly. He's right here. He's right now. I have to decrease. I don't care about that. He's got to increase. This is Jesus. Follow him. He's the one. And I love this last piece in verse six. I don't know if I have a slide on it or not. I don't. But if you look at the last part of verse in verse six, it says, and all people say all people, all people will see God's salvation. Literally, the terminology there could could be translated this way and all flesh. When it says people, it uses the Greek word sarks, which is often uh, uh, translated as flesh. In some places uh, by Paul, it's translated as sin nature. This idea that all flesh, no matter how far you are away from God, no matter how much you haven't seen God, because he's coming, because Jesus is on the scene, all flesh will see the salvation of our God. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope that's good news to you like it is to me. The idea there of Salvation, that word soteria in Greek, yesha in Hebrew, is a word that, that encapsulates the idea of being saved or delivered from being hemmed in, being restricted, being confined or oppressed. So the deliverer comes, the savior comes the one comes who is able to take you out of that restricted and confined and hemmed in place and give us a place of openness of spaciousness and of true and lasting freedom that's the work of Jesus and all people will see the salvation of our God As I close, let me just say this. God gave us a timely prophetic word through John the Baptist to point people towards the Savior. So in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together where we remember him. We remember what he's done on our behalf. So let us look to our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let's ask him to strengthen us, not just once, but every day, day by day, so that our lives might point people to Jesus. My little brother worked really hard on his list to make sure we didn't forget anything on our little camping trip. Except I forgot how to fish, but that's different. How much more should we be looking to him and finding in him all that we need to prepare the way so that people will see Jesus Christ through our lives? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you once again. Lord, you're so good. We can't even, there aren't words 
to describe just how good and great and powerful you are. Lord, I pray that as we are in this Advent season, some people may be putting up lights and trees and decorations and buying gifts and all of these things that we celebrate. Many people celebrate in this time. It's a wonderful time to want to bless others. But God, I pray that we will be about the business of making our hearts prepared for the Savior so that we might point others to Him for His glorious good purpose. Have your way. Be glorified, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed today by the preaching of God's Word. Join us every week for fresh insights on the New Life Philly podcast. If you would like to reach out to our church for more information or if there's some way we can pray for you, please visit newlifephilly.net or email newlife at newlifephilly.net. May the Lord richly bless you this week.